The story of how Macedonia, Ohio got its name is pretty crazy. Let me tell you about it. In the 1800s, there was a man named Abraham Cramner. He purchased 90 acres worth of land at the intersection of what's now Jenkins and North Bedford Road. In about 1824, he built himself a little home and soon many people from all over started flocking to this area and this little settlement became known as the Corners. Years later, there were some divinity students from Western Reserve College who were regularly called to go preach at the Corners and they would refer to their visit by using the verse Acts 16.10. Acts 16.10 says, and we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God had called us to preach the good news there. This caught on, and soon, not just in this circle of preachers, but all through the community, the settlement that was once known as the Corners became permanently known as Macedonia. It was this story, the fact that Macedonia, Ohio, got its name from a Bible verse about preaching the good news of Jesus. This was part of what led myself and my family to move back to Ohio to plant a church. And so we started the Chapel Nordonia, a branch campus of the chapel in Akron with the vision of seeing a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church impact every corner of our community. And for two years, we watched God move, even in the difficult days. Hearts were changed and lives were transformed as our church grew not just locally, but even reached to the other corners on the other side of the world. This past summer, my wife and I, we got to go to Mozambique, Africa to meet with uh, some future church partners over there and the national language is Portuguese. When we got back, our whole family began to learn Portuguese. Why? Not because we're moving there. Mas porque queremos ver todos os cantos de teia conhecendo o nome de Jesus. From the inception of our community to the inception of our church, the mission has always been to see Jesus transform every corner of our community and every corner of our world. And so now we're branching out from the chapel in Akron and our name is changing and we're moving locations and we're essentially relaunching the church, but the mission is the same. We wanna see lives transformed by the word of God so that every corner will know that Jesus is Lord. And so on December 4th of this year, we're officially relaunching as the Corners Chapel with the same vision of seeing a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. The story started in the 1800s, and it continues this December. God is good, amen? Amen, amen. Hey, well, it's great to be here with you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is where we're gonna be at. And uh, while we're turning there, let me just say, uh, I'm so excited to be here with you today. It's always great to worship alongside uh, you all here in Akron. Uh, if you've been uh, coming to this church for a while, uh, you might remember that we did something similar to this a couple years ago. Uh, in January of 2020, uh, we prepared to send off our, our church. And uh, there's actually should be a picture coming on the screen of the last time uh, that we were here collectively as a church. Uh, and so you might be wondering, why, why are we, didn't we already do something like this? Well, uh, if you remember, something else happened shortly after January of 2020, and uh, we were supposed to launch in March, but that got uh, pushed back. And so we ended up starting our church actually uh, online. And uh, when we came back together, it just wasn't the cultural climate to have uh, the kind of big launch that we uh, were hoping to have. And so with the uh, collective vote across all the campuses uh, that we just had a couple months ago, uh, we decided uh, at our church in Nordonia, 
Uh, kind of to hit the, the, the reset button, uh, not at all discounting the past two years and the wonderful things God has done over the last couple years, but uh, to be able to uh, kind of start again with a, a fresh start and with a name uh, that's not only intrinsically tied to the mission, but tied uh, directly to where we've came from, namely right here at the chapel in Akron. And so uh, I wanna share with you a little bit about that mission, but, but also the reason why we're here uh, is to say thank you. Right, to collectively say thank you to you all uh, as a church. Uh, thank you for uh, the, the resources to be able to, to get us off the ground, but also that allowed us to uh, survive for the last couple years, uh, two difficult years that easily could have uh, shut down any church. Uh, but not just for the resources, but also for your encouragement. All right, I was telling some people in the first service how uh, it's interesting to be here uh, almost every day during the week to office here, but not to be here on Sundays. Uh, but when I do run into you guys during the week or, or sometimes on Sundays, if I forgot to print something and got to come back last minute, uh, uh, you guys are always asking about how things are going on in, in Macedonia and in Nordonia. And so thank you for your encouragement. It's been felt. Uh, but most importantly, thank you for your prayers. Uh, right, we know that prayer really is the engine of the church. And so on behalf of our congregation in Nordonia, I just wanna say thank you all for your continued prayers over these years. And as we look uh, into the next chapter of our church, just know that we are eternally grateful uh, for you all and for what God has done here at the chapel and what we hope to see him do likewise in Nordonia. Well, if your Bible's open to Psalm 67, uh, I wanna read it in its entirety and then I'll pray. Uh, so if you're willing and if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Psalm 67, starting in verse one. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for the blessings that you've uh, done in and through this church. Thank you for all that we've been celebrating already this morning, for Pastor Tim and, and passing the licensure, for all the, all, all, the, all the baptisms and the wonderful testimonies that point to your goodness. Lord, may your presence and your goodness continue to be felt over these next few moments as we dig into your word. May I become less, may you become greater. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I wanna start off today with a, a quote from Pastor David Jeremiah. Pastor David Jeremiah is a, a pastor, an author, radio host in San Diego, California. And here's what he says. He says this, he says, the only way the corporate body of Christ will fulfill the mission Christ has given it is for individual Christians to have a vision for fulfilling that mission personally. Let me read that again. The only way the corporate body of Christ will fulfill the mission Christ has given it is for individual Christians to have a vision for fulfilling that mission personally. 
I believe this to be true. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that I've, though imperfectly, staked my entire life on this truth. And this was one of the driving motivators that led my wife and I to return to Ohio to plant a church. I think that most Christians know this to be true, but most Christians aren't aren't entirely sure how they can live on mission personally and what exactly God wants them to do. Most Christians, if if they're honest, know that God has called them to something, something more, but aren't exactly sure what it is. And so many go to church knowing that it's the right thing to do and are hoping that that simply going to church will fill that God-given mission-shaped void in their life or that uh, going to church will somehow uh, help them uh, get onto the right terms with God. But they're nervous, if they're honest, that when they die, that they'll face a God who's upset with them for not doing whatever it is that they were supposed to do. Don't raise your hand, but is that anyone today? If it is, know that you're not alone. Whenever I think about this situation of Christians knowing that there's something that they should do, but not knowing exactly what it is, I can't help but think of one of my favorite stories about a California man named Larry Walters. Okay, this is one of my favorite stories. It's a true story. I've shared this with uh, the congregation in Nordonia, Uh, but it's a story about a man named Larry who went out to the Army Navy surplus store and bought 45 used weather balloons and inflated them and attached them to a lawn chair that he had secured to the back of his pickup truck with a rope. You might know where this is going. On July 2nd, 1982, with a bunch of his friends looking on, he climbed into the chair and got comfortable and had one of his friends untie the rope. He took nothing with him except for a peanut butter sandwich, a six pack of beer, and a fully loaded BB gun. Two and a half hours later, this is my favorite part of the story, two and a half hours later, the Los Angeles International Airport reported a UFO, an unidentified flying object, remember this is a true story, and the airport reports a UFO up in the skies above LAX at 16,547 feet, three miles up in the sky. And so Lawn Chair Larry, as he would later become known, is up three miles up in the sky, he's 100 miles from his original launch site, and he's completely passed out. And a pilot of a 737 that was about to land at LAX saw and radioed into the airport and said, uh, quote, I'm not sure exactly how to describe this, but I see what looks like a completely motionless figure sitting in, is it a lawn chair? I'm not sure. And I think he's holding a rifle. And so there, there was an arrest, a rescue attempt that, that would have seemed like it was something out of an action movie like Top Gun or something, but somehow they managed to ferry him back to the ground. And in case you're wondering what he was thinking, well, we don't have to wonder because thankfully he lived to tell the tale. Uh, but he later said uh, that he thought that when they untied the rope, he would sort of just float up to a nice little altitude. When he was high enough in the sky, uh, he would take his BB gun and shoot the balloons and he would level off and then shoot some more. And eventually he'd land on the ground What could go wrong with that plan, right? Well, his friend said that when they untied the rope, Larry didn't lazily float up in the sky, but it looked like he'd been shot out of a cannon. And so Larry said, I freaked out, I didn't know what to do. And so I did the only thing I know how to do when I get stressed, I drank the beer. So he drank four cans, not realizing that the blood alcohol level at this altitude is way different. And so he passed out. On the ground when he was revived, he was issued a a $4,000 ticket, which is just hilarious to me. Uh, uh, But weeks later, he was interviewed by a journalist and the journalist asked him, and this is what brings it back to today, the journalist asked him why he did it. And here's what he said, Larry said, I just got tired of always sitting around. 
Now, now I'm sure that parts of this story have grown with legend over the last 40 years, but the core of the story is true. But I think that this story actually captures the way that many Christians in the United States feel in our churches today. We're just tired of sitting around. And while it's great that that Christians are motivated to leave this state of monotony and uh, and uninvolvement behind, uh, this pursuit in and of itself often plays itself out in less than ideal ways. Let me give you just three of them. Many Christians turn to Christian entertainment as a pursuit of meaning. And so you'll see many Christians who are trying to fill this mission-shaped void in their life by simply turning to Christian influences or influencers and hoping that by filling themselves with some sort of Christian entertainment, it'll allow them to feel complete. And there's nothing wrong with Christians having a good time, we should, but many will turn to influences and influencers and sometimes even churches that water down the essential elements of the faith in order to keep people entertained. And so, and so what we see are many believers who are not growing, but are just entertained. Others in an effort to do or just feel something will swing all the way to the other side of the spectrum and enter into overly legalistic or, or rules-based churches and denominations to make sure that they're avoiding laziness in their faith. And so they'll boil down Christianity just to a system of rules, do this or, or don't do that. And so as a result, we see many Christians today that look more like the Pharisees of Jesus' day than his disciples. And then lastly, we see many Christians investing all of their time and all of their energy into fighting for and against social issues, which is great and in and of itself, but many will do so in partnership with and, and, and with those who do compromise on doctrines. And so many of these Christians will end up uh, associating with or maybe even becoming those who don't just water down scripture, but twist it. And as a result, we see many charitable and well-meaning Christians lose hold of and even turn from sound doctrine, even if it's in an attempt to be like Christ. And so you see the problem, right? Christians today, we don't just want to sit around, which is good, but, but we see Christians fighting against this mediocrity by, by primarily pursuing entertainment or by falling into overt legalism or even by abandoning doctrine in an attempt to have some sort of influence. Well, my goal today is not to bash or shame any professing Christian at all. Many, if not most of us, uh, we've at some, at some point in our walk found ourselves in one of these three groups. And maybe even today, we find ourselves with a similar lack of not knowing just how we can live for Jesus individually. So I'm not sharing this to shame or to bash anyone, but I'm sharing this to highlight the fact that there's a problem because if David Jeremiah is right, and I believe that he is, that the only way for the corporate body of Christ to fulfill the mission of Christ is for individual Christians to have a vision for fulfilling that mission personally, then unless all of our churches and all of us as believers are united and engaged in the pursuit of that vision together, then we'll just be a collection of lawn chair Larry's where we're trying to do something, but more often than not missing the mark. And so what is the mission of Christ and specifically how can we as as individual believers and as distinct church congregations fulfill that mission together? That's the question that I want to answer today. And I think our answer is found in Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is not the most often quoted Psalm. In fact, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, he wrote five commentaries on Psalms and for whatever reason, he skipped this one. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to ask him why. Uh, But even though it might seem like somewhat of an obscure Psalm, Psalm 67 has an important message to tell us exactly what our mission is. And the mission is, as it's described in this Psalm, that God wants to use your life 
to make his name great in every corner of the world. God, God wants to use your life to make his name great in every corner of the world. Turn to your neighbor and say, God wants to use your life to make his name great in every corner of the world. Amen, amen. And so Psalm 67 is called a missionary psalm because of the emphasis that it places on God being praised and God being enjoyed and feared by all the nations of the world. In fact, this psalm emphasizes the worship of God being spread to all the nations more than any other psalm. But here's the deal. This missionary psalm is also a personal psalm. Because again, as David Jeremiah was saying, your personal embracing of the mission and the fulfillment of the mission are dependent on each other. And I'm not saying God cannot work apart from you, but what I'm saying is that God in his sovereignty has chosen to use his people. He chooses to use you to bring about his purpose, which is to be a blessing and make his name great to the whole world. You say, wait, reaching the nations, reaching the whole world, that, that's missionary stuff, right? That's for evangelists and pastors and missionaries, right? Well, yes. But the truth is that God has called every Christian to be a missionary. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, then you are called to be a missionary. Only some missionaries will have to leave the country to obey that call. But regardless of if that's you or not, the Lord is calling you to embrace his mission right where you are. And just like there's three pitfalls that I mentioned that often keep professing Christians from joining in on the mission with God, Psalm 67 reveals three truths about how God wants to use you to reach the world. And really understanding these ways are so important for us. And the first one is this, God wants his glory to be revealed to us. God wants his glory to be revealed to us. I know we're in Psalm, Psalm 67, but if you would jump real quick back to uh, the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter six. As I was reading Psalm 67 earlier, maybe some of you recognized uh, the words from the first part of that Psalm and maybe tied it to the song, The Blessing. Because like the first few verses of Psalm 67, the song, The Blessing is actually a reference back to Numbers chapter six. And in Numbers chapter six, God commands Moses to instruct Aaron and his sons, the priests, to bless the people. And here's what he tells them, Numbers six, verse 24. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And he says, so shall they put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. This is called the Aaronic blessing or, or Aaron's blessing for some of you. But this, this priestly blessing or this, this benediction is the same prayer that the psalmist had in Psalm 67. Look at Psalm 67 again in verse one. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Some translations like the, the, King, the King James uh, uses the word merciful in verse one. But I think the word gracious is more accurate. To quote uh, Pastor H.B. Charles, a pastor in Jacksonville, one of my favorite pastors, he says, uh, this distinction between grace and mercy is important because the psalmist is, quote, not asking God for mercy, which restrains the divine punishment that one deserves. He's asking God for grace, which grants the divine blessings that one does not deserve, end quote. In other words, the writer of Psalm is not just, he's not just asking God not to give the people what they deserve, but he's asking God to give them what they do not deserve, namely that God would bless them and, and make his face to shine upon them. Have you ever thought of your faith in this way? 
Have you come to the, real, the realization that Christianity is not just simply a way to escape the punishment that we all deserve, namely eternal separation from God, but it's actually a blessing on top of it? And there's many illustrations that I think help uh, represent this and show this, but the most helpful to me is the image of a courtroom. Right? Imagine that you're in a courtroom and, and you're watching uh, the sentencing and everyone in the room knows that the person on trial is guilty of the, of the most heinous crime that you can think of, whatever that is. And imagine that you're in that courtroom. The judge knows they're guilty. Everyone knows they're guilty. And the judge says, I know what you deserve, but I'm not gonna give you that punishment. In fact, you can, you can walk out of here. That's mercy. But imagine if the judge was to say, not only am I not gonna give you the punishment you deserve, but I'm gonna invite you to become part of my family and you'll get the benefits of being one of my sons or one of my daughters. That's grace. And that's the grace that God has lavished on us because we as fallen and sinful, broken men and women today, we're not only just deserving of the worst kind of human punishment, but we're deserving, like Pastor Tim talked about last week, hell and eternal separation from God. And when we really wrestle with this truth, that, that apart from the blood of Jesus, there, there's nothing that separates us from the worst of the worst. In fact, we were the worst of the worst before Christ, but now if we're in Christ, then no matter what you've done, no matter your guilt, no matter your shame, no matter the burden that you carry, if you earnestly run to the Father, he'll forgive you, that's mercy. But he'll also make you a part of his family, which is grace. And when you wrestle with that, then brothers and sisters, you see that the Christian walk cannot just simply be an entertainment playground to water down the word. But when we come into the house of the Lord like this and we're worshiping together alongside broken brothers and sisters, it's a constant testimony of the fact that God's glory is revealed to us through his grace. Amen. And here in Psalm 67, the gracious blessings of God are pictured in physical terms where with God's face shining on his children, uh, just like in numbers, but catch this, the psalmist, the psalmist doesn't say that the blessing's just for Israel, right? The, the point of the priestly blessing, Aaron's blessing, he was, he was reminding the people of Israel that, that Israel would be blessed, that God would bless the people of Israel. Numbers 627, again, it says, so they shall put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. But the psalmist says, Lord, I want your grace. I want your blessing, why? Verse two that your ways may be known on earth, that your saving power may be known among all the nations. It's this thought that's echoed in Psalm 83 when the psalmist says, let them know that you whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. He's saying, he's saying God, I want people all over the earth to know your name. And what's the name of God? Yahweh, right? That's how he discloses himself to Moses. He says, my, my name is Yahweh. The Hebrew writer spelled it with no vowels. Many wouldn't even write it at all. We won't get all the way into this, but many of the Hebrew scholars when looking at God's name, Yahweh, have concluded that when we breathe, we breathe the very name of God, that, that our breath by itself is an act of confession to the existence of the Almighty, right? That when we breathe in, it's like the sound Y-H, the sound we make when we breathe in. And then when we breathe out, it's like W-H, the sound when we breathe out. And so the name of God, Yahweh, is literally the sound of our breathing. How often do you think about breathing? Like how often in your, in your day do you think, I need to breathe in now, I need to breathe out? Some of you are doing that now, I just messed you up right there. Right? But, but breathing is reflective. And God has designed it that our breathing is a reflective declaration of his name, Amen. 
I mean, think about that. The very one who holds creation together, the one who controls the winds and the, and the rains and the one who holds stars in place, the one who holds our very lives in his hand, his name is spoken forth every time we take a breath. All of creation, even our breath sings the Father's song and he's revealed that to us. But catch what, catch this, point one, God wants his glory to be revealed to us. Point two, God wants his glory to be revealed through us. Uh, again, the psalmist, we don't know who wrote this, but they're asking for the gracious blessings of God in the first couple verses. Why? So that all the nations might know God's ways and God's saving power. But verses three through five shows us that even the evangelism of the world itself has a purpose. And that purpose is to reveal the glory of God. In other words, we should want the nations to know God so that the nations may worship God and in glory, or in turn, his glory is revealed. In the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. That's the passion that the psalmist has in Psalm 67. He knows that God alone is worthy of the highest praise. And, and this truth is expressed by his desire to see all the nations worshiping and praising God. In fact, this is the theme of all of Psalm 67, that God's glory will be known through him being worshiped by all the nations. It's recorded in verse three and repeated in verse five. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. But that's not just the theme of Psalm 67, because what I want you to see today is that's actually the theme that stretches through the entire Bible, that God wants all people, all the nations to praise him, that in the end, there will be a great diverse people of every nation, every tribe and every tongue praising him. That's the heartbeat of the mission of God. If you know the Bible, you know, Matthew 28 is what we call the great commission, the end of Matthew 28. Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Uh, and, and, God, and Jesus says, he'll be with us to the end of the age. That's the great commission. Uh, and as a quick aside there, the great commission should destroy any notion that we can water down God's word. Or we're told to teach all that Jesus taught us. But, but what I want you to realize is that the, the call to reach the nations didn't start there. Like when we think of missions, when we think of evangelism, often we go straight to, to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. We start, uh, think that's where the, the commission was first given. But if that's the pivotal moment when everything changed and we were given a mission then, then why isn't the Great Commission mentioned again anywhere else in the New Testament? You ever think about that? Not, not because it's not important, but because the call to see the name of God spread to the whole world is saturated through the whole Bible. Right? God's desire to see his name spread to all nations, to build this kingdom again of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's, that's not a New Testament church thing. It's a thread that stretches through the whole Bible. If you know the story of Abraham, all the way back in, in Genesis 12 and 28, God promises this random guy named Abraham that his descendants will be a blessing to who? To people who are just like him. No, to the whole world, to all the nations, all the families of the world. The, the mission, this mission of God stems all the way from the book of Genesis. And when we realize that this isn't just a New Testament thing, that this isn't just a, a politically correct thing, that in the beginning it was prophesied about that Abraham's descendant, namely Jesus, 
will be a blessing to every nation. And then at the end, there'll be uh, that scene in Revelation with every tribe and every nation bowing down before the throne. When you read scripture with that lens, then you realize that there's a missional redemptive thread from the beginning all the way through eternity. Which brings us to our final point. Because if all of redemptive history from start to finish shows us that God is building and gathering a people from every nation so that his name will be made great, and then we realize that we're somewhere in the middle of that story, then it leads to the final point that God has called each of us to display his glory to all the nations. God has called each of us to display his glory to all the nations. Again, Psalm 67 is called the missionary psalm, but we're all called to be missionaries, right? We're, again, not all called to go overseas, but we're all called to play an active role in seeing God's glory on display to all the nations, not least of all our own. Sounds daunting. Let me just give you three quick characteristics that we need, three characteristics that must define us if we're gonna live as missionaries and do our part to spread God's name. Number one, we as believers, we should be marked by gospel-shaped humility. We should be marked by gospel-shaped humility. Friends, in light of what we've talked about already, how can our lives not be marked by humility? And the reason I say gospel-shaped humility is because I'm not advocating for a self-abnegating or, or monastic view of, of, of humility. I'm not saying we need to be monks or punish ourselves in order to be seen as humble. I'm also not saying we need to fill ourselves with guilt in order to weigh ourselves down and make ourselves feel a false sense of humility. But no, I'm simply saying that when we focus on the grace that we've been given and we pair that with the fact that like the Puritans used to say, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And we add on to that the fact that we serve a God who speaks galaxies into existence, then brothers and sisters, how can we be anything but humble? This is where our heart to see the spread of the gospel, our heart to live on mission, this is where it has to start, with humility and a right understanding of who we are. Yet so often what I often see in the church are believers that seem more characterized by anger, by frustration, by a desire to win arguments more than models of humility. I see believers looking down on those who they disagree with and using all kinds of names uh, and memes online to belittle those who they disagree with. And even those, even belittling those who are far from Christ instead of realizing that apart from the grace of God, that could be any of us. No, a right understanding of our undeserved standing before God should cause us to be marked with gospel-shaped humility. Why? So that the world can see us and realize that there's something different about us and ultimately be drawn to the one who has set us apart because he's set apart. In other words, one way to live on mission is to live lives of humility so that the world will know the one who came and died as the perfect model of humility, which leads to the next characteristic. We should be marked by mission-molded urgency. Marked by mission-molded urgency. We already saw how the whole Bible re-emphasizes the desire of God to see the gospel reach to all nations. But look at the rest of Psalm 67, starting in verse 6. It says, The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. And the reason for that blessing is given in the very next verse. Verse 7, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. God blesses us so that all the ends of the earth 
will fear him. Israel's material blessing was translated into spiritual blessings to all the nations. Even God's blessings are not just for us, but so that they're so that the ends of the earth will even know his name. I can't help but think of Solomon. We're not going to turn there, but in 1 Kings 8, where he's dedicating this new amazing temple and, and, and just focusing on how good that temple is. But what's the reason he gives it? He says it's so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is good, is God, and that there is no other. That's part of what led to, to, to us naming the Corners Chapel because we want to see the gospel go to all the corners and we want people to see when good things happen in the church, it's not because of us, it's because we want to see the gospel go out. But it's not just the blessings. All right, again, we're not going to turn there, but Psalm 22, it's worth reading on your own. The, the, the whole first part of the psalm is just negativity. The psalmist is recounting all of these disastrous things that are happening. But then he pivots in verse 27. Uh, he, well, he pivots in verse 19. So he's describing this bad situation and then starts to talk about the blessings of God that are gonna happen, that the hungry will be fed and that the, the hopeless will have hope. And why? Verse 27, so that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. So in, in the, the mountaintops and the low valleys of life, it's all so that the name of God can be proclaimed regardless of our circumstance. Our mission is to spread the name of Jesus. That's why we're here, right? That's why we gather on Sundays, not just to learn theological facts, although that's good, but so we can learn to live on mission and share the name of Jesus. We're here to see the lost saved. We're here to see those who are far from Christ become beacons of light that the dark world cannot ignore. And friends, the mission is urgent. Why? Well, because there's over 3 billion people in over 7,000 people groups who are currently unreached by the gospel. This map here is a map by an organization called the Joshua Projects that, that, that shows uh, the areas in red are areas where people have no access to the gospel. The areas in yellow are areas where it's difficult for people to have access to the gospel. The areas in green, that doesn't mean that those areas are dominantly Christian, but it means that if someone has questions, they can find a church, they, can, they have access to the gospel. But there's over three billion people in our world that have no access to the name of Jesus at all. They're completely unreached. And while global missions is important, it's not an either or, we know there's also countless people that are suffering in our own communities and in our neighborhoods, people who are far from Christ. And here's the deal, this leads to our final sub point. If we're claiming to have the solution of people's brokenness, then how, why is it that so often what we see in the church or that we spend the majority of time fighting each other. Right, whatever divisive issue it is that pops up, we often see more division within the church. But no, our lives as brothers and sisters in Christ should be marked by an ecclesiological-driven unity. It's a big word, ecclesiological. Ecclesiology just means the study of the church. And so an ecclesiological-driven unity is simply a desire for unity that's driven by what we know to be true about the church and what do we know to be true about the church that should drive us to unity. We'll turn with me real quick to John 17 and with this we'll begin to land the plane. John 17. John 17, this is Jesus' prayer for us. Jesus' prayer for his followers, not just the disciples, but us. John 17, verse 20. This is what Jesus says. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, here we go. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for us, for believers that would come later, that we would have unity, why? Just because? You know, we're, we're called to have unity so the whole world will know the name of Jesus. Again, that's our mission. That's, that's why we're here. We, like the psalmist and like the, the New Testament writers and the Old Testament saints, we've been given the task to make God's name known to the world. And brothers and sisters, we can't do that if we're more focused on what divides us than the mission that God has given us. I wanna close with an illustration uh, that I got from Pastor David Platt at a conference back in the spring. And I've asked four people to come up and, and help with this illustration. Pastor David Platt's a pastor of a, a church right outside of Washington, D.C. So you can imagine that would be a kind of a hotbed for divisiveness, right? And so I've asked these four to come up here uh, to, to give us uh, an illustration uh, that I've used also uh, with our church in Nordonia and actually also in Mozambique uh, to show what gospel unity looks like. And so these four uh, are going to represent four different types of people in the church. Maybe even four different churches, but uh, I want you guys to, to come together to, to make a circle by holding each other's hands. And by holding hands, this is uh, the illustration I wanna show of what we often think it's like to be unified by the gospel. They, they have differences and probably different perspectives, different, different backgrounds and on, on a number of things, but, but it seems like they're unified, right? When we're unified like this, it can be easy for us to focus on what's different. It can be easy for us to focus on where there's disagreements. It can be easy for accusations and, and distrust to creep, to creep in. It can be easy for us to be divided and ultimately to break hold of one another. This is what's happening in our churches and all across the world where we let our divisiveness turn to pride and our anger turn to frustration and we break apart and the outside world says, says I got enough problems on my own. Why do I want anything to do with that? That, that doesn't look like something I'm drawn to. That looks like the rest of the world. I'm not gonna waste my time on Sunday mornings or going to Bible studies or reading the Bible if this is the ultimate result. But there's another way for them to form a circle while holding each other's hands. Can you guys show this different way? This says David Platt, is the kind of togetherness that allows us to reach the lost when we are one so that all the corners of the world will know the name of Yahweh. Amen. When we're not just focused on our own disagreements, but when, when one brother's eyes are focused on the discipleship and the broken marriages that are taking place here at Akron and another sister's eyes are focusing on, on the single parents and those that need help in, in Macedonia and another brother's eyes are focused on training up pastors in India and in Mozambique. And when we have a sister's eyes that are focused on uh, just all of the other wonderful ministries in, in Green and the addiction there and, and in Medina and in Cuyahoga Falls and in Kenmore. And when we're all focused outward, but we're united by the strength of the gospel, then our grip is even tighter because we're working together to get the gospel out. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Brothers and sisters, what if we in the church here 
today in our congregations in Akron, our congregation in Macedonia, all the gospel-centered chapel churches that are becoming independent churches. What if we wholly embrace each other because we're wholly embracing the mission that God has given us to share the good news about Jesus? What if every single one of us, all of us as individuals, were focused on the mission that God has given? We weren't just trying to be entertained in church. We weren't turning to legalistic lists and systems of do's and don'ts. We weren't watering down the word for anything. But what if we wholly embraced the mission to be humble, to live on mission, and to be unified by the gospel? Just think for a second, what would that look like? What if God, knowing that there's people in this building here today, that many are just like lawn chair Larry, just tired of sitting around. And he's ready to put us in this room and in these churches on the front lines of ministry. And he wants to use us in ways that seem simple, but actually play an indispensable role in the spreading of his name and the spreading of his glory to the deepest and the darkest parts of our community and our world because we're showing people a different way to live. Well, what would that look like? Well, I think our lives would be transformed. Marriages would be healed. The, the baptismal pools in all of our churches would constantly be filled with new believers. Students would be sharing the gospel with their classmates. The hungry would be fed. The homeless would be housed. And those who thought that they had it all together in their lives without God would see, you know, there's something different about those Christians. It's not what I thought. It's actually something that I want. And church, what I want you to know today is that the only way that the corporate body of Christ will fulfill this mission that God has given us is if we as individual Christians have a vision for fulfilling that mission personally. And so we have a choice. We can leave here from this room today and we can say, we're just tired of sitting around and we're going to do everything that we can to fight hell together for the good of those in our communities and around the world who are far from God or, or we can fight each other while those who are far from God go to hell. The mission is clear. The calling is for all. May God give us the courage to humble ourselves, to live on mission and to strive for unity, all for the sake of the advancement of the gospel so that all the corners of the earth will know the name of Jesus. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.